You drafted Buster Posey where? We'll ask Todd Zola of MastersBall.com about the FSTA Experts Draft, strategies and tactics, 2012 busts and likely comebacks, and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's a pitch on the way, a swing and a bat. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of January the 25th. It's show number two of the 2013 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host. And in addition to Todd Zola of MastersBall.com, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Jock Thompson. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at Pittsburgh outfield prospect Gregory Polanco. And in his Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler also talks about the FSTA draft. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We're talking about where to draft Buster Posey? We gotta keep talking some baseball. And the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. We have Jock Thompson on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Hey, the big news this week in the National League, of course, Justin Upton traded out of Arizona, and he goes to join his brother B.J. Upton in what should be a very interesting and potentially uh, very productive Atlanta outfield. What do we think of Justin Upton moving to Atlanta? You know, Justin Upton, that trade has been rumored for a long time, and Justin Upton last year had certainly a down year, a breakout year in 2011 with 31 home runs and and, uh, showing a nice jump in power. And then last year, uh, power, power declined from a 160 PX in uh, 2011 to a 96 PX last season. Uh, and so, you know, you, you wonder what's going on here. We got 25 years old. Well, I'll tell you what's what probably going on. He injured his thumb in April and, and played through it. I mean, this guy did not miss a beat. He had 592 at-bats, or from, I'm sorry, 554 at-bats last season, um, even with an injured thumb. And if you look at... If you look at what happened by by month, suddenly everything started to get better in September. Uh, after a fairly dismal power outburst through the rest of the season, had three home runs in August, uh, and then had six home runs in September. So what may be going on is a, a healing of that thumb, and suddenly that power that we knew was there uh, began to come back. Um, this is a guy with good uh, across-the-board batting skills. Uh, I think he could have a big, big rebound in Atlanta. Are you not concerned that he moves from Chase Field, which is pretty friendly to right-handed home run hitters, to Turner Field, which, to be charitable, is not? Well, that does make a difference, and certainly you're going to see some some decline because of that. Um, but again, I think I think we're looking at a guy who's going to be severely discounted at the draft table after last season, and someone certainly worth taking a look at. We're looking at a, uh, a guy who makes good contact, contact rate around 80%, and maybe even higher, 85% contact rate in September. Uh, as I said, a lot of latent power. And uh, if he gets his PX back up to the 160 range, 
Um, <laughs> it shouldn't really matter if your if your PX is in the 160 range, then uh, you can hit it out of pretty much any park there is. Very definitely. And I should explain for listeners who aren't familiar, PX is our power index, which is a league standardized measure of power where 100 is league average power, and anything below that is a little less than average. Anything above is more than average. And Todd Zola and Laura Michaels of Masters Ball took Justin Upton somewhat controversially with their second overall pick in the Fantasy Sports Trade Association Experts Draft held last week, and I'll be talking to Todd Zola. I'll be sure to ask him about that. Chris Johnson also goes to Atlanta. Nick, uh, a third baseman, he'll probably get a chance to play there, competing maybe with uh, Juan Francisco. Uh, be wary of Chris Johnson, I'm going to say. Decent second-half power last year, but uh, his batting average looks a little shaky. Uh, going over to Arizona, Martin Prado will play mostly third base. And the interesting chip might be uh, starting pitcher Randall Delgado. Yeah, Randall Delgado is, is a guy that we've, we've always liked a bit and, and certainly has shown some good things in Atlanta, but in and out of the rotation because of inconsistency. And my guess is right now the same thing will happen in Arizona, uh, kind of in and out. Uh, maybe a guy who can break into the rotation, but if he gets inconsistent, they've got enough depth that he won't stay there. So Randall Delgado, I think, is a good uh, – uh, a good chip down the road. Maybe this year may not be his breakout season. Yeah, I was going to say they, they're they pretty rich in pitching down there, even though they traded Trevor Bauer in a, this offseason to the American League. And also, you know, anytime Atlanta trades a pitcher, I'm always suspicious that they know something that we don't, and I tend to take their word for it over a lot of people. So uh, yeah, if you're looking at Randall Delgado, just keep in mind that he got traded by an organization that is usually pretty good at figuring out pitchers. Uh, the Philadelphia Phillies made a couple of uh, moves, including uh, two guys named Young. And let's start with uh, perhaps the more interesting of the two, Delman Young, going to go to Philadelphia, and he's going to play right field. Yeah, Delman Young. You know, Delman Young is a guy, remember, a real real hyped uh, player a few years ago, a, a top draft pick. Uh, never has quite panned out. Uh, seemed to have sort of a breakout season in 2010 when he hit 298 with 21 homers. Uh, and then things tailed off. Last year wasn't bad, uh, with 18 home runs, 74 RBIs, 267 BA, kind of a solid fourth outfielder who would have worked all right on fantasy teams. But you got to be real careful about Delman Young because the base skills are beginning to show some real erosion. Here's a guy with uh, just a 3% walk rate last season, 0.18 batting eye. Uh, one begins to wonder how long he's going to keep that batting average up. Um, in fact, XBA last year was 255. Uh, power, just kind of so-so, was, was very good in 2010, has been declining a bit since. And a guy who's, uh, whose fly ball rate is going down, uh, hitting way too many ground balls. You know, I, I, I don't like Delman Young a lot going to Philadelphia. And if you're in a league that, uh, that counts fielding, you don't want to think about Delman Young in the outfield. He seemed like a pretty good DH in the American League. Uh, I'm scared of him in the National League. Yeah, and people say, well, it doesn't matter. My league doesn't count fielding. But at a certain point, you have to also worry that if his fielding is as atrocious as we might expect it to be, that he could actually lose playing time over it if he's bumbling and stumbling around out there in right field for the Phillies and they start thinking, geez, this guy's costing us runs out there, especially if he's not hitting real well, um, that his inability to field his position well could actually mean he ends up spending more time on the bench which really would impact his value yeah i think very definitely that needs that's the kind of thing that needs to be needs to be considered and we're not projecting delman young as a full-time player i think anyway at this point uh, looking at about 60 percent playing time in our projections so uh, delman young is not a guy i'd be jumping all over in drafts one other note about Delman Young, uh, after the trade came out, it, there was some, some news that said that the Phillies were giving him uh, up, to, up to a $600,000 bonus for not getting fat. 
They're going to weigh him six times during the year. And uh, every time he makes weight, he gets a $100,000 bonus. But, man, what does it say about a player when you have to you have to entice him with money to stay in shape and to play the game? That's that's not a good sign either. Not at all. You know, I saw Dominic Young play in spring training last season, and he, he made this most spectacular fielding play of the game when he reached over the fence to take a home run away from Edmund Encarnacion. Probably the best fielding play he made all year made in spring training. And how did the fence survive, Nick? I, the, the fence sort of survived. His, uh, I, I, I remember seeing a dent in it after the uh, play, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, an outline shape of, uh, of Delman Young, uh, like in the Roadrunner cartoons. Uh, the other Young who goes to Philadelphia is third baseman Michael Young, finally uh, gets his way out of Texas. He'll be playing third base in, in Philadelphia. Another fielding question, but also a batting question. Yeah, a real batting question, I think, now with Michael Young. I mean, here's a guy who's had a wonderful career in Texas, a, uh, a ball player that you always sort of wanted on your roster because he had lots of roster flexibility. Uh, he, he could play second base. He could play some shortstop. Um, so, but, and I, you know, and I've used Michael Young for, for various times in the American League as a second baseman where, he, where he, he projected pretty well. But now we're looking at a third baseman. And listen to our, our projected stats for uh, – uh, for Michael Young, six home runs, 53 RBIs, 276 BA. That's not what the kind of production you need from your third baseman. So here's a guy who's, uh, whose skills overall are declining. Um, he, he probably won't hurt your batting average, but that's about all you can say at this point. Yeah, he's always been a fairly high contact guy, and he's been getting better at that. Never a big walk uh, guy, though. Five uh, percent walk rate last year is pretty much in line. the The stat that jumped off me when I looked at it, Nick, was his power index. We talked about PX a little while ago with Justin Upton. In two thousand nine, Michael Young had a one twenty one power index, which means his power was about twenty percent better than league average. And in the three seasons since that, listen to this: one hundred and five, ninety one and then 59 last year. This is not a trend you want to be buying into. No, definitely not. And, and just another trend that goes right along with that, 34% fly ball rate in 2010, 24% fly ball rate last season, uh, and, and, and declining in steps since then. That, again, is not a trend you want to be buying into. No, I mean, in, maybe in uh, American League only or National League only leagues, he could uh, he could be a decent corner infielder type guy. You got to fill that spot with a two or three dollar guy. But gosh, uh, other than that, it's it's hard to see finding a, a roster spot for Michael Young. And certainly, you don't want to buy on reputation. Very definitely. Finally, a guy I know you're intrigued by out in Colorado is the middle infielder Josh Rutledge. Saw a bit of playing time last year with Troy Tulowitzki. He's struggling with injuries as usual. And uh, Nick, you seem to like this uh, decent power-speed combo. Well, you know, Josh Rutledge is going fairly low in drafts to start things off and actually had a very good season last year. Eight homers, seven stolen bases, and 277 at-bats, 274 BA. uh, Makes good contact. The question going into the season is, where is the guy going to play? Chulowitzki is back, and so what's going to happen to him? Here's a guy that, that probably will slide over and become the starting second baseman in Colorado. He's got a power index last season of 126. That's a nice thing to have in Colorado. He's got a speed index last year of 129. So here's a good, nice power-speed combo who's likely to wind up at second base, and this year also qualifies at shortstop. Um, a guy who could go very cheaply in drafts and be very productive, uh, especially if he winds up with that starting second base job. 
Yeah, and this is going to be really valuable to you if you draft early because probably by the end of spring training that role will be much more solid. People will have a, a much greater idea that he's going to get the at-bats. Uh, we're projecting at BaseballHQ.com that he's going to get nearly 500 at-bats and finish with 15 homers, 15 bags, which is pretty nice and a two eighty one batting average and uh, even 54 RBIs. That's around a $20 player. Boy, if you could get him for 4 or 5 bucks, you'd be pretty happy about it. Very definitely. A good, good possibility of profit with Josh Rutledge, I think. Absolutely. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us about the National League. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a columnist and writer at BaseballHQ.com and our National League analyst here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and BaseballHQ.com writer Jock Thompson. Jocko, how's it going? Welcome back to the show. Thanks, PD. Let's do this. All right, uh, I'd like to start with uh, Brent Hershey had a score sheet column at BaseballHQ.com, and in part of that column he looked at crossover players, uh, that is, players changing leagues, and uh, a big name in that regard, uh, Jock, in the offseason was Josh Johnson, of course, came over to Toronto from Miami in that big salary dump deal, and what do we think of Josh Johnson's prospects uh, playing for the Toronto Blue Jays this year? Yeah, Johnson's an interesting guy. Uh, he's He's always had these injury problems. I mean, you can remember he was he was a Tommy John uh, surgery survivor about three, four years ago, and since then he's always had these shoulder problems. Uh, he hasn't thrown 200 innings in uh, four years, and, and yet he's, he's still a pretty good pitcher. Now, the problem you have here is that for, for the last three, four years before, before um, 2012, he was throwing 94, 95 miles an hour on average. Now he's throwing just over 92, and, and you've got to wonder whether these injuries are, are beginning to affect his skills. In fact, if you look at his skills, his, his expected ERA was worse than it's been in five years. It was still good. It was 3.79 this past year, and his ERA was 3.81. But now he's coming from the National League over into the AL East. Um, it, it's really interesting. I mean, he, he, he could be a good pitcher, but how much do you want to bet on him this year? Well, I guess that's the $64 question, isn't it, Jock? I mean, you got to think about this guy has a past record of being occasionally very, very good, like a, a real solid player. Uh, as recently as uh, 2009, 2010, he was well into the $20 range as a 5 by 5 pitcher, good strikeouts, a nice high ground ball ratio. How much do you bet on a thing like this? I'm curious what you think. I think the thing that sways me to hedge my bets a little bit is um, the fact that he's moving over to the AL East in Toronto. Uh, he was he was actually in a much better park in Miami. Uh, Toronto's got a little bit more of an offensive history. Um, I would still pick him up. I, I just wouldn't bet on him to rebound to, to what he was. And, of course, you're never going to bet on 200 innings from the guy. No, that's certainly true. And uh, his dominance rate over the last three years, his strikeouts per nine has decreased from 9.1 in 2010, which was a terrific year, down to 8.4 in 11 and just uh, 7.8 last year. So it's a bit of a decline, maybe age-related. Of course, Jock, the price is always the thing, right? I mean, if you get him at, in the 14th round of a straight draft or for 9 10 bucks in a in an auction, it seems like it might be a, a risk worth taking with some pretty good upside, but at $20, not so much. Yeah, everything's relative to price. I mean, that's that's our mantra, and if you can get him cheaply enough, he's he's going to be good. Another player that Brent Hershey touched on in his column, which was about uh, guys crossing over leagues, is Brett Myers, who uh, was a relatively successful closer in the National League, signed as a free agent in Cleveland. He'll rejoin the rotation there. Uh, what do we think? This is a lot of change, league change, role change, 
That's a lot to consider. There's a few guys like that this year. Of course, we got Wade Davis coming over to Kansas City as well. But Myers has a lot of interesting pros and cons uh, going on. When he was in the bullpen last year, his velocity actually spiked up over 90 miles an hour for the first time since 2009, which which one would expect in a in a relief role. But his dom, his 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 strikeouts per nine innings actually plummeted to 5.6 which may have been a factor in him in him landing just a one-year agreement. Uh, that said, his career as a starter has been very good. Um, the last time he started for Houston, uh, his ERA was 4.46 against an expected ERA of 3.7, so he had a little bad luck year. Um, his, his dominance is declining, and his ground ball rate is going up. Uh, he knows how to pitch, but I would be a little leery of him coming over from the National League to the American League as well. I really like the low fly ball percentage that Brett Myers brings, just 27% last year, albeit mostly in a relief role. He's, but he's historically been around uh, 32, 33, 34%, which is really good when you have a 50% or so of ground ball rate. I kind of like this guy as maybe a bit of a sleeper. I mean, people are going to look at 2011 probably, his last 200-inning uh, year, 216 innings, and he only earned about 2 3 bucks. He was minus in 4 by 4 type rotisserie, and... You know, you look at that year and you go, I don't know if I want to bet on this, but if you go back one more year, another 200-inning year, a 314 ERA, 124 whip, a $17 pitcher. I mean, that's not bad. He had 180 strikeouts in 2010. Again, you know, you don't really want to bet the farm on a comeback, but it's not completely out of the question. No, you're right, PD. The, the one thing that I would caution people betting on him, though, too, is that Cleveland defense, which is very porous in, in the infield. And he's throwing a lot of ground balls right now. He's more dependent on the ground ball than he ever was. If you look at the the respective uh, trends of his ground ball rate and his strikeout rate, so uh, I think that's going to be a factor. Jock Greg Ambrosius of the National Fantasy Baseball Championship writes guest columns at BaseballHQ.com, and one of his recent columns talked about Bruce Rondon, who's uh, a pretty inexperienced relief pitcher, but he really throws hard. And with the uh, departure of Rafael Soriano, the closer role for a good Detroit team seems like it could be open for a guy like Rondon to step up and maybe get some saves and some strikeouts. I was a little surprised that Detroit didn't go into the market for a more proven closer. And it's not that Rondon doesn't have the skills. I mean, the guy the guy gets clocked at, at, at 100 miles an hour. He regularly, he averages 95, 96. But we've seen guys like this. I mean, we've, we've seen Java Chamberlain do the same thing his first couple of years with the Yankees. Um, experience is everything, particularly on a, on a, on a contending team like Detroit. Um, I, I really wonder um, what's going to happen there. I, I still think the way to go in Detroit um, will be the more experienced guys, guys like, uh, well, Keen Benoit, who even though he, uh, or Benoit, uh, who even though he has um, uh, some age on him, he's 35, 36, he still has some pretty good skills uh, at striking out over 10 a game. And even another guy, um, Octavio Dotel, who's over 40 years old right now, he's, he's still striking out uh, uh, at batters at, at closer material. Rondon, I think, would be a very good uh, future play, and, and uh, who knows, maybe, maybe he does inherit the job, but... Uh, he he also has a career 5.1 uh, control or walks per nine, which means if he loses the plate and starts taking something off that fastball, a major league hitter is going to hit it. That's always a big question mark. We see those 100-mile-an-hour guys. He's got nearly 10 strikeouts per nine innings as his uh, career minor league rate. It's over 10 at AAA, which is a very encouraging sign. 
But yeah, that is a lot of walks. He walked almost eight guys per nine innings in his AAA season last year, and uh, that's not a recipe for success. Uh, this looks like the kind of thing that maybe if you can snag him on a reserve pick or maybe get him for a buck at the end of the draft and stash him somewhere in some way, that maybe he's worth grabbing. But I certainly wouldn't anticipate that he's going to get the closer role, and if he does get it, I wouldn't anticipate that he's going to keep it. In fact, Jock, wouldn't it be kind of a good thing if uh, Rondon got the job and then you could sneak... Uh, Benoit or somebody else in that more experienced Detroit pen to to wait for the inevitable collapse? Yeah, I I mean, the Detroit pen is definitely uh, interesting to watch. Um, You've got another guy we haven't even mentioned, a guy named Al Albuquerque, who has only thrown 56 major league innings because of an injury last year. But he's he's struck out over 13 batters per nine innings and uh, has a ground ball rate approaching 60%. Now, Granted, he still walks about five hitters a game, but when you when you combine those two stats, he could probably get away with that for a little while. For a little while, but man, those walks will kill you if you're a closer. Uh, staying on bullpens, Doug Dennis at BaseballHQ.com, our bullpens analyst, highlighted another guy that might be a sleeper for the saves in uh, Carter Caps, the Seattle Mariners, of course, uh, Brandon League left. It looks like Tom Wilhelmson will go into the season with the role, but what's uh, so interesting about Carter Caps? Well, Caps is 22, and he, he very much like Rondon, he throws mid-high 90s, but he has better control than Rondon does. In fact, um, he, he, he really rocketed through double-A. He, he, he uh, put up a 75-12 to 12, uh, K slash BB, strikeout-to-walk ratio, in just 50 innings and, and put up a 126 ERA. Um, he may have some growing pains because he skipped AAA, but uh, I, I like Wilhelmson, but Wilhelmson isn't exactly set in stone over there. I don't know if you've seen his second half, but uh, he faltered a little bit. He, his control soared to over four, four walks per nine innings, and he put up a 72 BPV, which isn't exactly closer material. Now, I expect, uh, all things considered, I expect uh, Wilhelmson to hold on to the closer role. But I would definitely tie him to Carter Caps because Caps is a closer of the future. BPV, of course, base performance value. It's a combination of all the BaseballHQ.com pitcher metrics into one easy-to-understand number. 70 is pretty good, you're right, but usually we like to see those closures up around 100, and uh, 70 might not be getting the job done. I'm with you, Jock. I really like this Caps guy, and I think that uh, Wilhelmson, should he falter at all, the uh, the team might realize they don't have to be that patient, and boy, that six command ratio, six strikeouts for every walk at double A. Last year, and a 126 ERA, very, very impressive. Uh, Matt Gelfand at BaseballHQ.com in his Factor Fluke column, Jock, uh, wrote about David Murphy of Texas. This guy has been a very solid, useful fantasy player for the last few years, and lately he's been getting a little better. The thing that Matt really pointed out that I liked in his column is that uh, Murphy's plate skills have, have really solidified. He's, he's making contact in the, in the mid-'80s, um, and he's walking more than he has in the past. He's wa- he walked last year at about 11% clip. The one, the one thing that I would disagree just a little bit with Matt on is that Murphy still hasn't hit lefties with any consistency. Now, now last year, he, he did put up a 342 batting average, which on first blush you'd say, what are you talking about, Jock? But he had a 44% hit rate. And in 75 at-bats, he, he hit zero home runs against left-handed pitching last year. As a platoon guy, maybe, I mean, there's left-handed pitching is relatively scarce in the big leagues, so he's going to get most of his at-bats against right-handers. Maybe that's a good thing if he sits against left-handers. 
You don't have to worry about the 44% hit rate, and you can just uh, enjoy your takings. That's pretty much my point. We're talking about a platoon guy here. He has averaged between 404 and 457 at-bats for the past five seasons, so he's very consistent in that regard. Um, Matt speculated that perhaps he could get another 100 at-bats with the absence of Josh Hamilton. That I'm not sure about, and I'm not sure it would be a good thing for either Murphy or Texas if he did. But a very solid platoon guy, a guy who's going to get you double-digit home runs, double-digit stolen bases, and hit between 270 and 290 at the same time. You know, Jock, uh, I mentioned recently on a previous show of Baseball HQ Radio, the late Earl Weaver, the Hall of Fame Baltimore manager, who realized the potential of using platoons to get great results from a roster slot rather than from particular players. And, of course, the example I pointed to at the time was in 1982 when he combined Gary Renicki, a right-handed hitter, and John Lowenstein, a left-handed hitter, as his left fielder. And that slot... Ignoring uh, Renicki's at-bats, he also had some against right-handed pitching. But as platoon players, they combined for a 310 batting average, 32 home runs, and 89 RBIs. And that's getting value from that slot, and it's something maybe we should be trying as fantasy owners. Yeah, I think in deeper leagues, that's definitely the way to go. For example, like your suggestion, suggesting, pick up Murphy. I don't think that too many people are going to overvalue him. They're going to look for those 400, 450 at-bats. And then go in and pick up somebody like, well, Johnny Gomes, who just got traded to Fenway Park. What a good combination that would be. Indeed it would. Uh, Finally, Jock, before I let you go, the uh, Houston Astros, newly acquired into the American League, have signed Eric Bedard. This is about the third time that Eric Bedard's tried to find his way back to the big leagues. Does he have it anymore? Um, My guess is not. Uh, Eric Bedard's 33, and and I think the injuries have finally caught up to him. Um, For the past three, four years before 2012, whenever he was healthy, he did very well. Now, he was healthy most of the year last year, and he was awful. He had a a 5.01 ERA. His his expected ERA was better at 4.19, but um, his skills really have slipped. He's walking hitters at over uh, four batters a game. Um, It's to the point now where at age 33, I I think all the injuries are finally, finally... uh, um, hurting his skill set a little bit. I would not be taking a chance with him, particularly not on that Houston team, which is going to be pretty bad this year. So if you need to have a Canadian pitcher, it's definitely not going to be Eric Bedard. Maybe like uh, Ryan Dempster or uh, Rich Harden? Yeah, definitely Ryan Dempster, although he's in Fenway too, so I would hedge your bets a little bit there. But of the three we've mentioned, Ryan Dempster is certainly your best bet. And if you really have to have a Canadian pitcher, hey, grab Fergie Jenkins. He looks pretty good. There you go. All right. Jock, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Okay, PD. See you next week. Jock Thompson writes regularly for BaseballHQ.com and is our American League analyst here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with Todd Zola from MastersBall.com comes up next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the Take me out with the crowd. HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here. Glad to have you aboard for show number two of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. And really glad and excited to have our next guest. He's Todd Zola from MastersBall.com and ESPN's uh, Under the Microscope column. Todd, welcome to the first uh, show for you this year on Baseball HQ Radio. 
uh, happy to be here, Patrick, and uh, hopefully, hopefully it won't be the last. Oh, no, it definitely won't be the last. Uh, just love having you on because you have so much insight into what's going on in the world of fantasy and strategies and tactics. The guy who likes thinking about fantasy baseball is always a welcome guest here at Baseball HQ Radio. And I know, Todd, you're just back from Las Vegas uh, feeling a little bit under the weather because you were at the Fantasy Sports Trade Association, the first experts draft of the 2013 season. How did it go for you guys? Well, I did find out that, that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas is true except for a head cold. <laughs> That, uh, that came with me. But the draft itself went well. Um, it was uh, a 13-team mix, 5x5, five five, was covered on the, uh, the satellite radio, the fantasy sports station there. It was, it was, you know, for a January draft, I think it was pretty fun. Were there any surprises or trends within the draft? Anything that really caught you off guard about how people approached it or order of players taken, things like that? Yes and no. Um, I, I thought the, there's a general movement that pitching is going a little earlier. Uh, and I think people will say, well, they didn't look at this draft. I think it, it, they, it did, but the, the top pitchers took a little longer to go off the board than I expected them to. But, you know, after a while, it, it caught up, and by the end of the fifth or sixth round, you know, the, the same number of pitches, pitchers that are going off and, uh, nowadays went off, but it was just the top three for, you know, Verlander, Kershaw, and Strasburg. They took a little longer than I expected, but uh, it, it, like I said, it caught up by round five or six. And I always have to ask, because we're going to be talking about closers in a minute, but were the closers going where, about where you expected? Closers went, yeah, they, uh, they went a little bit later than I, the other thing this time of year, what's going on is some early NFBC drafts, but it's a completely different animal in that they're in draft and hold. And in the draft and hold leagues where you don't get to pick up a closer, you know, in season that just that emerges, uh, you you sort of need to lock them down so they do go a little earlier. So the closers did go a little later because even though this is a draft and hold league, um, no, there is free agency. I'm sorry, there is free agency. There's just no trading uh, it's because you can pick up a, a speculative closer in free agent market. I think people you know can wait a little longer. They don't feel the urge to to lock down their closer as much as you might if you don't have the opportunity in August to pick somebody up. And again, we'll talk more about this in detail in a second when we get to the closer that you guys took. But uh, you've pointed out, and BaseballHQ.com has pointed out, and lots of people have pointed out, that there it's getting really hard to find a, a sure thing closer in Major League Baseball anymore. What is the, the statistic is something like out of every 30 closers who start the year, 25 of them don't have the job when the year is over. Well, it's cyclical because I think a couple years ago it wasn't as bad as it had been in previous years. And then the mistake is to go and base your strategy on what happened the previous year, of course. But I think it's part economics in that the last thing a, 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 the last thing a competing team needs is the closer. And you know, you, you, we just saw you know Soriano just sign. You can always either you know trade for one or you can you know acquire one. So I think in the old thing where you know even bad teams get saves, it's true. But the bad teams used to actually have pretty good closers on them. I'm not so sure that's going to be the case anymore. I think what, one of the things that makes a bad team bad is it has a bad closer. So even though, yeah, sure, the bad teams are still going to get saves, they're not going to be as the closers that they have aren't going to be as talented as they may have been five or six years ago. Uh, but it's just uh, it's just a strange position in, in, you know, in baseball and, and, in, and in fantasy as well. I mean, you've got a guy like, like Papelbon, who's probably the most consistent guy, like seven years in a row with 30 saves, something like that. Uh, obviously, with Rivera out last year, kind of broke his streak. 
but uh, it's just there's just not a lot of consistent guys out there that you can just hang your hat on and say, you know, 35 saves and not hurt my other categories. What about the whole idea that the guys who run actual baseball teams are catching on to the idea that closing is overrated as a role, that getting saves is overrated as a stat, and that if you have a pitcher who has decent skills, you can kind of rotate them pretty straightforwardly without worrying too much about it. And Billy Bean in Oakland seems to have figured that out a couple of years ago where he would, uh, he seems to have adopted the strategy that he can develop his closer, trade him off to somebody else for something that's actually useful, and then bring the next guy in who can, you know, has reasonably high strikeout rate, reasonably high ground ball rate, develop him in the same way, then move him along for something that's actually useful and just keep this cycle going. And maybe a lot of the teams in baseball are realizing there's nothing that special about closers that we can't find one in our own organization as long as he can throw hard. And as a result, there's more churn at the major league level. Right. I think the other aspect of I mean, if you recall several years ago when, when Theo Epstein tried to do the closer by committee and it just failed miserably, so the first thing he went out and did is sign Keith Falk who then, you know, threw the last pitch of a, of a World Series championship season. But the point being, the reason that they, didn't, that, that they claimed it didn't work is we're dealing with human beings. We're not simming their statistics. They want to know their role. Are they eighth? Are they seventh? Are they ninth? I think as the old guard fleshes out and, you know, the new guard comes in where they may not have the, I'm the closer, you know, that, that's it. As that mentality fleshes through, I think the pitchers themselves may be more amenable to, you know, okay, yeah, use me in the most important situation. If it's to, if it's to face Ryan Braun in the seventh inning because it's a one-run game, you know, I'm, I'm not insulted if you bring me in then. Ryan Braun's really good, you know, which is what, you know, if we were playing sim games, that's what we'd be doing. Right. You, know, uh, you know, we would, but, but, you know, so I think that's a part of it too is once they, the mentality of the, uh, of the old guard closers that have been around aren't insulted by, you know, by being brought in the eighth inning to get the best hitter out. And a lot of that might depend on the growing acceptance of the idea of leverage rather than just inning and roll, because if, uh, and especially when paychecks are starting to be negotiated, if, if a pitcher can confidently go with his agent into a contract negotiation meeting and where now his agent might say, look, or an arbitration might say, look, this guy's got 35 saves each of the last three years, because more people understand that that's kind of a bogus statistic to use, but if the agent can go in with his with his pitcher and say, "Look, this guy pitched in nothing but two point one levered situations and succeeded," all of a sudden, if everybody understands that's the value, then maybe that starts getting paid for. And if that's what starts getting paid for, that's what guys say, "I want that role." Well, you hit the nail on the head. That's why you know that's it's, it's the dollars and cents, and that's what you know holds was invented by the agents to get set up men more money. So yeah. if, if leverage index is the next is the next step, that would be great. You know, it would be, be great if, uh, if, you know, if, if, if people got paid more by OBP than by batting average, that sort of thing. And I think it's going to happen. Uh, you know, it should happen that we get to see it. But, you know, it, it, you know it's the next step, and it, it will happen. But, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's the money. It's, you know, you're paying for the saves. But um, they should be paying for the performance. They should be paying for the, for the outs. Uh, yeah, and especially outs in tough situations. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. Todd, uh, continuing on with how you guys approached the uh, FSTA first experts draft of the year, uh, Mike Trout went fourth after Braun, Miguel Cabrera, and Robbie Cano. Were you surprised Mike Trout went that high or that low? Well, um, I, Trout is going top four in almost every draft uh, that I've seen so far. 
so I'm, I wasn't surprised at all, uh, especially since uh, since I knew who was since I knew who was sitting in the three hole. And I knew they weren't taking him. They were, you know. So I, I'm not surprised at all that he went to number four. Uh, had I been number four at that point, he probably would have made it to number five. Uh, I went. I might. I don't know that we would have taken him at that uh, at that point. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be the one that says I'm not taking him at all in the first round. Uh, I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, after after the top three, which would be Braun, Miggy, and Cano for me as well. And then after, if if Kemp turns out to be healthy, and I'll even throw I'll throw pool holes in there. After that, he's in the equation for me. When I start thinking about McCutcheon, I start thinking about Cargo. There's all warts on everybody. I don't know that I would take him fifth, sixth, or seventh, but I'd be, begin to be thinking about him. And by ninth or tenth, I probably would take him at that point. I think there's going to be regression. Uh, I think obviously. Yeah. I mean, that's, that goes without saying. Uh, but it's you know the question how much. And uh, I could see taking him towards the tail end of the first round, but he's never going to get to that point, so it's moot. You surprised some of the people watching the draft and probably some of the people in the draft with the uh, second-to-last pick in the first round, pick 12 overall. You took Buster Posey, the catcher from the San Francisco Giants. Uh, what was your thinking there strategically or tactically? A couple different things happened here. Uh, if I, I, I keep saying we. We should quickly explain that I, my, my partner, Lar Michaels, was with me uh, via VChat. So we were, I was at the draft with the mic in front of me, and he was home. We were typing, uh, which is in, which it's relevant for the Posey pick because we didn't have him on our radar. We uh, we had five or six names that we were sure were going to go based upon stuff that's happened or be available. We expected Posey to be gone, and we expected a pitcher to be gone. Uh, so, you know, as we're trying to, you know, come up with other names because, uh-oh, what's happening here? We kind of realized what was happening. Um, put Posey out there, and, you know, we kind of said no. And I was pushing for Adrian Beltre. And in an alternate universe, different time, different place, different situation, may have made LG and Beltre the pick. But we came back to Posey for a reason that uh, some, some people that take the game real serious may not like, but that, that's fine. We came back to Posey because Laura and I said, you know what, neither of us are going to own Buster Posey this year or any time soon. It's not our style. Uh, we don't pay that much for a catcher in, in an auction. You know what, it's January. Uh, it's it's It's... We get a lot of time to, to make up for, you know, missed decisions because of, there's going to be a whole bunch of people that are merging a player pool. Let's have some fun. Let's draft Buster Posey. And that was kind of how it came about. And uh, did position scarcity enter into it even a little bit? Because Buster Posey's a, an attractive player at that position especially. We could go on forever about scarcity. I don't, I don't, necess- I don't believe in the concept of scarcity. or What I don't believe in is, is overdrafting a player because of scarcity. Uh, I make an adjustment in my in my rankings, and I, I had Posey ranked eighth uh, based upon you know just by the numbers, which I know you can't you know there's other things involved than just the numbers, but he was worthy of that spot based upon the numbers. Um, so it, it didn't. So and actually, the counter argument to drafting him at that point is I just I knew from having seen other drafts that at, at Catchers all the way down the line would be under underdrafted. I, I point to I point to Ron Shan. I point to your, to your guy Ron's point uh, pick of, of Yadi Molina in the fifth. I think I had him ranked higher than that spot. You keep moving on down the line. So what we gave up as an opportunity cost to get a similar return of investment on a catcher at a later spot, uh, and, and and still put another player in that on that twelfth 
12th pick in that first round that would come close to the same return of investment as Posey. So we did forfeit that. But like I said, this is, this is uh, you know, it's part of what we went into this draft with. Laura and I, are, we're very, we're, we're, I don't want to use the word overly conservative. We play it safe in these, in these drafts. We don't take too many risks. So one of the things that we also talked about was let's take some chances that we don't normally take because, like I just said, it's January. Um, there are people undrafted that, that are, that are going to, you know, with an injury here or a trade there. I mean, just look at Chris Johnson, how much more attractive he might be after the, after the recent trade right. uh, that, that we just didn't know about before that are, are going to be available to us uh, to, to, to put on our roster, you know, to, in a deficient you know, player or deficient position or, or a stat that we need. So let's take advantage of it's January, and let's use that to our advantage and draft accordingly. I'm I'm intrigued by something you said that you had him eighth based on your projected numbers, just regardless of what position he plays. And I assume at that spot he's kind of around what Andrew McCutcheon and Fielder, Stanton, guys like that. Uh, not necessarily Stanton, but yeah, uh, McCutcheon, uh, Fielder is in that in that group. Uh, Cargo, um, like I said, the t- my top three, actually the top six went went textbook as if they had my rankings and they were just reading them off the top. So the top six in this draft matched what I had out there for rankings pretty well, uh, pretty well to the letter. To see catcher, catcher is the only position I'm actually making an adjustment in their ranking. I mean, if the same stats from a catcher are worth more because they're coming from a catcher. I'm not making any adjustment to any other position because I don't think it's necessary. I don't right. think the, the same stats from a second baseman are going to be worth the same as from an outfielder in today's playing pool. So I'm not making any, uh, you know, I say ranking because we're doing a draft or we're doing an auction. I'd be talking about a dollar value. I'm not making any uh, adjustment in my valuation on any other positions but catchers. But that's a really interesting point because he's a catcher, and if you come to that spot, if you had been drafting, say, 7th or 8th, and you come to that spot and your choices are, you know, McCutcheon, Fielder, Stanton, Gonzalez. I know Stanton's not in the list, but uh, he did go fairly high in this actual draft. You, it it kind of makes sense to me that you'd want to say, look, there's going to be a million outfielders in a draft like this. Thirteen teams, mixed league. You know, there's we're going to be leaving off a lot of starting decent outfielders in the free agent pool, but we're not going to be doing that with a lot of catchers. Maybe it makes a certain amount of sense to give this guy a little nudge up your list on that basis because it's harder to find catchers ultimately when you finish the draft. And at the end, you could draft the last five guys could be outfielders, and they're all going to be pretty good. Well, the difference with being drafting him in eighth and drafting him in twelfth is the the there's a delta between players, uh, and it's greatest at the top of the draft. It's not a linear progression. And I know we're sure. talking, you know, potential. We don't know how each player is going to do. But if and all we have right now is our expectation, so the expectation is nonlinear. Uh, so if I had taken Posey, you know, hypothetically sixth, seventh, eighth, where I may have him ranked, I'm basically saying he's going to earn earn that spot. You know, he's going to earn. He's not going to give me give me return of investment. He, I want him to break even at that spot. Now, now it brings into the injury. You know, is he, is he more of an injury risk? Uh, and then, like I said, the opportunity cost of just having the sense that all the way down the line, Victor Martinez, Joe Maurer, Salvador Perez, Ryan Dumit, all these guys are going to go where they go are going to give a return of investment. So, what's the opportunity cost at taking him at number eight? That I, that I probably would not have done it, even though he said on my sheet, you know, he's the eighth-best player according to the numbers, the static numbers. I wouldn't have done it because of some other strategic reasons. But at 12, 
and I know eight to twelve doesn't sound like much, but like I said, it's there's a, a pretty steep difference of players at the beginning. At number twelve, he is going to give me the best return of investment at that spot, mainly because the first eleven guys all <laughs> went went before, except Beltre. But uh, I, I I wasn't able to convince my partner via G chat to take Beltre at that point. And it's also true that when you're when regardless of how you have guys valued, especially for a straight draft, you have to consider if if you even if you thought Posey was the best player in the draft. You might want to think, but everybody else in the in this league is not going to think so. So I may want to hold off and take him in the second round just because I can, and that way I can have two guys of first round value by just holding off based on what I expect my opponents to think. You know, it's funny if we had if we had taken Justin Upton twelve and Buster Posey on the comeback picket thirteen four, fifteen or whatever whatever it turns out. You know, the first pick and the second pick in the second round. I don't think we would have gotten near as much flack. Then we're getting by taking Posey first and Upton second. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, you did take Justin Upton uh, in the early part of round two, the second pick, which looks like a bit of a gamble and kind of is outside your normal profile. Is this part of this? Let's embrace some risk strategy. Yeah, the same idea with you, Darvish. Is we big, we got him as our first pitcher later. Neither of these guys, you know, put your projection hat on and do the three or averages and do the you know the engine. Neither of those guys came out to their spot. There's a little bit of leap of faith. We're we're assuming a little bit more growth than the normal person, you know, than the, than the engine says that age of a person should get. Uh, this is a league where, you know, it's uh, it was broadcast on the radio. I'm not sure how many times they mentioned who came in second. I know I do know they every time that that Steve Gardner and Howard came and made their pick. I do know they were introduced as defending champions. Right. So I mean, not you know, not saying we you know the, the we need we need the we need the plaudits of of winning the draft. And I'm just that's the point is it's a first place or you know second place is first loser, and I think you can approach those drafts a little bit different mentality. Uh, you know let's let's make a pick. You know if you if you make 23 safe picks and they do exactly what you're supposed to do, you know what you call yourself? You call yourself sixth place. Yeah. You know you need some players to outperform their draft spot, and Upton fits the profile of someone that can outperform that draft spot. We talked with uh, Harold Nichols, our National League Market Watch analyst, about the Justin Upton deal, and we mentioned the change in parks from Chase Field in Arizona, a nice hitter's park, a nice home run park, to Turner Field in Atlanta, definitely not so much. Uh, are you worried at all about this change in uh, hitting environment? Um, on paper, yes. Uh, but Upton is, you know, when he doesn't hit very many cheapies, so I think it, you know, it might, you know, it might cost him here or there. Uh, I don't, I, I can't get into these guys' heads, and I, so I made a, I made a conscious effort not to think, you know, I just deal with the fantasy aspect of stuff. But one has to think that the change of venue, playing with his brother, knock on wood, playing in a pennant race for him, has to outweigh the uh, the park, the park impact. I would think anyway. Yeah. So yeah, my my engine's gonna. If I don't make an adjustment, yeah, you know, he's going to hit fewer home runs when I when I put Atlanta in the in the team instead of Arizona. When it puts that park effect in there, it's going to change. But uh, and you know, if you forget that, and you know, put my other hat on, put my fan hat on. I think he's going to help him. I think I think it's going to end up helping him. Greg Holland, the uh, Kansas City's new closer in round eleven, uh, was that a risk choice or did he look like the best closer when you wanted a closer? We like him, uh, Lar and I both. Uh, like Greg Holland, he's actually our fourth 
if we were to rank, he'd be our fourth closer next to the obvious Kimbrel, Papabon, and Mott, although I should, a lot of people drafting Mott before Papabon as what happened in this draft. Um, after those three, you can make an argument for, you know, so I'll take 20, 30 months, 27 other closers to be the, uh, to be the fourth best closer. That's a little bit of a hyperbole, but you know what I mean. Uh, he's just a guy we both sort of like. We think he fits the profile. We like his skills. We think he's going to keep the job. So we actually took a little bit of a chance because we, we, we were looking at taking, uh, Jason Mott at that turn, but Tim Heaney took him right before us. So, well, let's take Papabon. And we said, you know what? No, let's, 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 we've talked about Holland. I think he'll wait. Of course, Ron then took Papabon in the very next pick, but we needed to address some other issues namely steals, so we addressed that with Eric Ibar uh, and then came back and, and got, our, uh, got our man, Greg Holland, in the, uh, in the 11th. In the very next round, uh, I wonder how many eyebrows raised when you took Kyle Seeger of the Mariners. Seems like a, a bit of a, um, an early grab, but what, what is it you like about Kyle Seeger? He's actually, it actually wasn't an early grab, at least if you base it off of the, uh, the, 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 the NFBC early drafts. I think he's... Uh, People are liking Kyle Seeger. What I like about Kyle Seeger is the, the guy hits line drives in his sleep. Um, I, I didn't know much about him. The irony of Kyle Seeger was this time last year, Lar was all over Kyle Seeger. We uh, were friends with Tony Blangino, who's in the, the Seattle front office, and he's a former Tut Warrior. He was in Tut Wars with us. Now, you know, one, one, of, the, one of the fantasy guys that, that fantasy guy that's made it in, in, the, in, in, in Major League Baseball. Uh, he was just telling Lar got to watch this kid. you got to watch this guy. This guy's good in spring training. So Lar was all over me. we got to get Seager. we got to get Seager in every draft we could last year. And we did. And, I, and thankfully we did. Now, I'm the one that really likes him this year. And Lar, rightfully so, has that reticence for, for second-year players. Eric Hosmer and Brett Lowry, you know, last year, asked their owners if, if, Lar, if Lar's philosophy makes sense or not. Yeah. But I'm still on Seager because, to me, line drives play anywhere. And I don't think... I don't think you forget how to hit line drives necessarily, and the fences moving in can only help, but I'd still be on him otherwise. Uh, we didn't have a third baseman at that point, um, and he was still, you know, regardless of that, he was still near or at the top of my list. So we, uh, we, uh, we were very happy to get Kyle Seager there. You know, I don't think he's going to win the batting title, but I do think he's going to be solid again. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with Todd Zola from MastersBall.com and ESPN's Under the Microscope column. Uh, Todd, in general, we talked about your strategy. We talked about the strategies of some of your some of your opponents in this draft. Do you think there are any new approaches out there? And really, when was the last one that that we can think of? The majority of the strategies nowadays have to do with pitching, whether it's p- taking pitching early, taking pitching late, uh, closers early, closers late. I don't. I think that's really uh, other than potentially people, how they still, we mentioned a little bit scarcity, how they may handle scarce positions. It's, it's more got to do with uh, draft dynamics than it does player evaluation. I don't know uh, presently if there's any strategy that will be built around, you know, the old money ball and, and inefficiency in, 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 in evaluating a player because I don't know that that presently exists. I think it might exist going forward with the new data. And I don't know. I don't know what it was going to be. I don't know what this data is going to show. But if this data shows us that we're misvaluing a player, or we can identify players that are going to, you know, continue on in a, in, in a positive manner, or who are not going to continue on 
in a positive manner. That might be the next way we can game it and, and learn, you know, to, to value players a little bit better, like some, someone like we've done with pitching over the past five or six years. I don't you know, without, without knowing what the, you know, the data yet, I don't know what that's going to be, uh, you know, swinging strikes or, you know, any of these other things. But uh, to me, that's going to be the next step is uh, once we, once the new data gets collected, and right now it's real good at telling us what happened. It's real good at telling us what happened. It's not necessarily all that great yet at telling us what's going to happen, mm-hmm. which I think is the next step. Yeah, it kind of divides the process, doesn't it, into first we've got to make better projections, which allows us to make better valuations, which allows us to be more efficient at draft. I, I, I think something you said a moment ago really stands out to me as being absolutely on the money, and that is that any new, the next big strategic breakthrough or tactical breakthrough at draft is going to have to do with game theory and, and understanding how your opponents are playing and reacting to various things, and how, the, especially if you're in a league where you know your, your opponents fairly well, that there's going to be some opportunities there. I, I think we've really got to the end of the pro- projections envelope pretty much. I, I can't see it getting that much better that we're, because even if we get these new tools like swinging strikes and stuff, there's still human beings and there's still going to be pretty wide variations in those projections from what they actually end up doing oh sure what i think it's going to be is uh, i mean you can you can take a look at, at the data of say john lester and we can we know we know know what pitches he threw where he threw him how fast he threw him what pitches were more or less effective than the previous year so we can we can explain why he had a bad year we don't know yet is is that, is that correctable is 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 John Farrell coming over? Gonna you know actually that's that's another variable to the equation, which might he may not be the best example because then now we're adding another variable. But the point being, okay, so then before we could just said, oh geez, his BABIP was high and it's going to come down. Now we we've taken that a step further. <laughs> Excuse me, and uh, you know we now know a little bit more precise what what actually happened. And you know any sort of player, you know I mentioned Kyle Seeger. Is you know is there something in his profile? That we don't know yet that Lar should be right or, or Lar is right and he is gonna he's gonna fade or maybe maybe he's not because there's something that a number we're not looking at that will tell us whether or not a second year player you know but like you said too they're you know they're people you know what if this kid got married in the off season or what if this kid had a kid in the off season you know you some of this stuff we just don't know. And what if the kid gets sick or, you know, they start fighting or whatever, you know, or the guy just can't get any sleep because the kid's got colic, you know. You're right. There's a million things going on there. And the other thing I think that mitigates against any big forward movement in valuation advantage uh, in a competitive situation like fantasy baseball is even if something gets discovered about swinging strikes or pop-ups or whatever the case might be, all these things that we look at, that information is going to get disseminated so quickly that the uh, that the entire fantasy baseball community is going to be aware of it, so it's not going to confer any competitive advantage at the bidding table unless you figure it out for yourself and keep it to yourself. And nobody does that. No, absolutely. But where 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 there is an advantage to be had is uh, sort of what I just mentioned is you don't want to base your strategy off of what happened last year. I think when some people you know they want to be the smartest guy in the room. So they want to be smart, and they, you know, they'll see what I think they think they're being smart by being reactive to something that happened. But it's not going to the next. The smarter person knows it's not going to happen again. So I think that's the danger: is uh, is you're basing a strategy 
on, you know, trying to be too smart and, and, and finding out that some things happen once and some things are a trend. Uh, you know, so I think it, that that might be, you know, just sort of being aware at the table and at the words. What I'm trying to do, I mentioned scarcity. If I'm in a draft where second baseman, third baseman, and shortstops are being drafted higher than I air quote think they should be, well, I, I need to counter that. And the way I counter that, excuse me, is pounding up the first baseman and the outfielders that have better stat, better stats. Uh, I'm doing a little mock right now where I need, I need to take pitching. But if I take pitching, I'm giving back my edge because I'm going to, you know, someone's going to take the outfielder that I now feel is going to give me a great return of investment. But if I take a pitcher now, by the time it's my next turn, that outfielder's going to be gone. All the players should be gone that, that you know, will be gone that should be gone just in a slightly different order. And I'm not going to get that edge by taking the outfielder myself. So if people are overdrafting scarcity, I think what you need to do is, you know, who are they pushing down to you? Take them. And that's, that's kind of what I'm trying in this, in this little mock that we're doing now to see, if, uh, to see how effective that is. It's Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from MastersBall.com. And, Todd, uh, late last year in your ESPN column, you st- discussed a, in a real interesting way the potential of pitchers to bounce back from poor seasons. And uh, some of the names you came up with then were pretty interesting. And I'm wondering, based on that thinking, you now have that was most of the way through last year, not quite all the way through. What pitchers who stank out the joint last year do you think are attractive, interesting pitchers for 2013? Uh, well, I think some of the you know, two of the names that I think even were mentioned, and everybody will mention them: Timmy Linskin and John Lester, which are still on my list. But um, you don't want those because I talked about them before, and everybody's talking about those guys. Uh, a name that I think. Uh, might be a little under the radar is uh, is CJ Wilson. Um, the, 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 he, he went to the Angels from Texas. Everybody expected the park would have a huge positive effect, but at the end of the day, you know, ground balls don't leave any park, so he didn't enjoy the same park effect. Uh, you know that that someone else may, uh, or the, the the you know because he went to the Angels, it wasn't as beneficial for him. But he had a little bit of an off year. Some of the uh, some of the control issues that uh, plagued him as a reliever sort of crept back in. But he's a guy that you know. I'm if you were high on him last year at this time, uh, I think you should be as high on him this year at this time. I don't think you should you know burn burn me. I'm not going to you know he's dead to me. I think he's he's a guy that uh, we're going to remember why we were high on him last year. Any pitchers from last year who had bad seasons, and you think, yeah, it's a bad season, and there's more to come. I don't want any part of this guy. The three names that I'm I'm still in the process of deciding because sometimes you just have to go for it. Uh, Danny Heron, Ricky Romero, and Francisco Lariano. Um, I think they're all guys that you know potentially could come back, but for one reason or another, if I can choose Lester Linscom or Wilson first. I would, but if I needed to make a desperation play, those are the guys that fit, that fit the profile. Romero came out that he was hurt, um, so if he's now healthy, we'll see. Heron, the problem there is, is that back, and you know backs don't tend to go away. Uh, they you know they tend to heal up and come you know and, and hurt you down the line again. So that's what concerns me a little bit about Danny Heron. And I don't know Lariano. I've just I know that. I don't know how many mulligans he's going to keep getting as far in our brains as far as he can, you know, maybe as many as, uh-oh, as Justin Upton's getting. But um, I just, uh, I'm going to let someone else think this is the year for Lariano again. 
Yeah, he missed my cut for sure. Uh, how about on the hitting side, Todd? Uh, we've all we always see every year that uh, um, you're going to have a, a handful of hitters who really underperform and are big disappointments. And uh, first of all, let me ask you: Are they more or less likely than pitchers to have good bounce back seasons? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I, I think I th- it depends if there was a latent injury or not. I think I'm, I'm, I'm more. I'm more. I have stronger feelings about pitchers than I do about the hitters, I guess, um, because I think it's a little easier to decide was it really bad luck or was it really bad pitching as opposed to was it really bad luck or really bad hitting. So I think, I don't know for sure, but at least the way I approach it without having to sit down and, and actually look at examples and with enough of a sample to, to prove it and not just you know intuitively think about it. Intuitively... You know, I, I maybe it's because maybe because I want the pitcher to be better because I think I can get a bigger. You know, if you're right on you know eleven one out of nine guys, it's, it's, it helps your team more than being right on one out of fourteen. Maybe so it's a bigger incremental uh, benefit of being right on a pitcher. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but um, I'm not exactly sure about that. That's an interesting put that putting that one on the list on the toddy do list. Just in general, though, do you think that there were any 2012 hitting busts who make good targets for this year, and conversely, any that you would still avoid? Well, I think everybody's talking Eric Hosmer, so I won't, I won't see Eric Hosmer. A guy I kind of like, and we, we talk about the uh, hitting pool, uh, the catcher pool being so putrid. I like Alex Avila to, to be a bounce-back candidate. If you, you know, in two-catcher leagues, I think he makes a great second catcher in a mixed, in a mixed league if you don't get one of the top guys. Um, I think that, excuse me, his uh, the you know, he 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 was snake bit, and I think he's going to come back and uh, and have a good year. Now you saw guys that I don't necessarily like. Um, I the whole injury thing, you know, puts a puts a wrench in it. But uh, Kevin Euclid going to the going to the Yankees, uh, he had warning track power in Fenway. I don't know what you would call that. You know, we we think of Yankee Stadium and we think of the right uh, right field fence. We forget how far it is to left field, though. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I, I'd put I'd put two left fielders in in, in, in Yankee Stadium. I'd put the shift on Uke. I'd have two left fielders out there, and uh, he wouldn't get a hit. Every, everything he hit would be caught. And if I was a defensive guy, I'm a little bit scared of Kevin Euclid uh, this year if I'm his owner. And I am in the XFL. Oh well. <laughs> That's the way it works. Sometimes just get what you have to get. Uh, Todd, where can listeners get more uh, Todd Zola wisdom? Uh, they can get it at mastersball.com. Uh, we've got our, our platinum package that is uh, presently available. And although I'm not as, uh, as uh, I don't tweet as much as, as some of the other people in the industry, I am on Twitter, just my name, Todd Zola. Uh, maybe, maybe once the season begins, I'll become a little bit more uh, vocal on the Twitter. But right now, it's, uh, it can get to be, pretty, you know, you get in these conversations labor-intensive in my my customers would prefer right now if I concentrated on uh, churning out the content. Maybe come April, I can become a little more uh, active on the actual, you know, following the games and commenting on the games. Todd, thanks for doing this very much. We'll talk to you again during the year. My pleasure, Patrick. Thank you. And we'll see you at Tout Wars in March in New York City. Absolutely. Todd Zola at MastersBall.com. You should check it out because there's a lot of smart stuff there. Our regular commentaries are next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio.
Radio. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back. It's Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular weekly commentaries. We have BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler on deck with Master Notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about Pittsburgh outfield prospect Gregory Polanco. It will be very interesting to watch the Pittsburgh Pirates' Gregory Polanco in 2013. Polanco was signed as an international free agent in 2009 out of the Dominican Republic. He had all kinds of raw tools, but really struggled in his U.S. debut, hitting just 202 and then 237 in two stints in the Gulf Coast League. The 20-year-old Polanco finally had a breakout season in 2012, hitting 325 with a 388 on on-base percentage and a very nice 522 slugging percentage. Polanco had 26 doubles and 16 home runs to go along with 40 stolen bases for low-way West Virginia. Polanco is a legitimate five-tool prospect and should be able to stick in center field where his speed and athleticism play well. While Polanco has an aggressive approach at the plate, he makes consistent contact and struck out just 64 times while walking 44 last year. Polanco added muscle as the season progressed, and reports now have him at 6'4", 220, and he was actually more productive in the second half of the season, a sign that bodes well as he moves forward. The Pirates could challenge Polanco by skipping him over high A, but wherever he starts in 2013, he is definitely worth rostering in all long-term keeper formats and has the potential to be a 2020, if not a 30-30 player once he reaches the majors. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. During this offseason, we're running out the major league organizational reports, and all season long, Rob and Jeremy Deloney and Colby Garapin and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on the top prospects, moves within organizations, daily call-up reports, very, very helpful, and pretty much everything you need to keep tabs on the rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Matt Beagle's taking a week off, so now we move to Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about the FSTA draft. The 2013 Fantasy Sports Trade Association Experts League draft took place this past Monday, January 21st. I wound up with the number 11 seed in this 13-team league, which is not great, but not horrible. The first round provides an interesting mix of players this year. The acknowledged top three picks are Ryan Braun, Miguel Cabrera, and Mike Trout, in whatever order you'd like. I have a long litany of reasons why Trout does not belong that high, but that's another story for another day. The mid-round players are a bit riskier this year. Matt Kemp, Carlos Gonzalez, Joey Votto, all coming off of injury. Andrew McCutcheon overachieved his metrics a bit. Even Buster Posey is going early, apparently because nobody remembers the lesson of Joe Maurer. Given that you want to avoid risk at all costs in the first round, the tail end actually offers some more stable commodities. I asked my readers in the BaseballHQ.com forums who they thought would fall to me at number 11, and the consensus pick was Prince Fielder. Given skill and risk, I thought that would be an excellent choice, and I was ready to roster the Tigers' first baseman. Well, when you get a group of experts together for a draft, you are likely to see things that buck common practice. This is usually not because the experts are wrong, but quite the opposite. 
The first apparent oddity was that Mike Trout was picked fourth, with Robinson Cano going third. This is a completely defensible pick, given Cano's long track record in position scarcity, especially with the incredibly thin second base pool this year. I do have one concern this year, however, and that is the state of the aging Yankees ball club and the shifting of power in the American League East. It's possible that Yankees' run scoring will be down, which will prevent Cano from reaching the RBI and runs totals he used to put up. Still, it's a pick I probably would have made myself at number three. The second apparent oddity is bigger. If you look at average draft position rankings at the major sites, you will find the first round populated with at least two, and sometimes three, pitchers. Clayton Kershaw, Justin Verlander are almost always first rounders, and sometimes Steven Strasburg slips in there as well. The thought process behind these picks is that they are stud arms, stable commodities, and provide a needed anchor to a pitching staff. Well, the experts disagreed. Kershaw did go off the board first, but not until pick number 22. Here is the important reality. No matter how dominant a starting pitcher is, he only contributes in two counting categories, wins and strikeouts. Hitters contribute to up to four counting stats, and the early rounds are when you absolutely have to stockpile those numbers. The average categories, ERA, whip, batting average, those can be managed throughout the draft and during the season. That's why you have to focus on batter counting stats in the early draft rounds. And because no pitchers came off the board in the first round at the FSTA draft, Fielder was selected a few picks before my number 11 selection. When it was my turn, I was actually surprised to find Carlos Gonzalez still out there. It's not a pick without risk, but all the stabler first-rounders were gone at that point. And so it begins. Welcome to the 2013 season. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler writes his Fanalytics column every Friday at BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about the Snake Draft push list, and it's interesting reading. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also has his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of January 25th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number two of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and we invite you to take a second to go over to iTunes and rate our show. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Todd Zola of MastersBall.com. Todd's a great guy with a wealth of knowledge, and he really likes to talk baseball. He's our kind of guy. I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch analysts this week were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League analyst was Rob Gordon. And our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com publisher, Ron Chandler. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com right now for these features. Bob Berger has a research article about how to account for infrequent or rare events when you're evaluating pitchers. Matt Cedarholm's rotisserie column looks at revaluing saves and relievers. And Stephen Nickran's Starting Pitching Buyer's Guide looks at pitch movement. Plus, we have our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, other buyer's guides, and much more. I'm Patrick Davitt. Early next week, I'll have part two of my research 
on the effects of park changes in Seattle and San Diego. And of course, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>